The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good evening, good evening, guys. How are you guys doing? Good. Hey, could, would you guys mind flipping that light back on? It'd be awesome. That way everybody can see their Bibles. And... Hey, we're going to start out tonight in 1 Peter chapter 2 and uh, pull our starting text, our starting point from there, and then we'll kind of loop, we'll make a big circle and come back around at the end here. First Peter chapter 2. So we are in the middle of a series right now entitled Ecclesia, which simply means, that's the Greek word for the English word church, uh, which is used in the Bible. Ecclesia simply means those that are called out, those that are uh, separated by God for his purposes. And so there's lots of ways in which the, the Bible talks about the church. Lots of descriptors. There's even more descriptors than what we, what we use up there. But these are some of the most prominent analogies that the Bible uses to describe the nature and the function of the church, God's people. And so it's referred to as a body, which we went over as in the first week. It's referred to as a temple. And as a family, and tonight we're going to take a look at, as a priesthood, what it means when the Bible refers to the church as a priesthood. So we'll pick up our text, first of all, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse uh, 2. Like newborn infants, long for the, for the pure spiritual milk, that by it may, you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul and keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We have this passage here in which Peter is pulling from several analogies, some of which we've already gone over, the analogy of 
the body of Christ or the church being a, a temple. But tonight we're going to focus on what it means when Peter says here that we are a priesthood, or more specifically, a royal priesthood. So there is a little bit of a biblical dilemma here. And as we think about like the nature of the Bible and the way that it's put together, the dilemma may not seem obvious at first, but I'm sure it's something that probably all of us have run into at least once or twice in trying to understand the Bible, the nature of God's work, and how it all fits together, what's, what's put together. And so here's, let me pose a question to you. To what degree is God doing the same thing in the church that he did historically in Israel? Ever thought about that? Okay, so God, one God, doing one thing, right? Then he's, he's working with Israel. Now he's working with the church. Is it the same work? What's, what, what's the differences between the two? In what ways, another way of asking this, are there continuity, that is a continuous thought pattern, if you will, and in what ways are there discontinuity? Matter of fact, this is the major division that you see between the Catholic Church and the Protestant movement, or Eastern Orthodoxy and the Protestant movement, is this understanding of continuity versus discontinuity. How continuous is the thought that is, that is uh, being displayed through the scriptures? So the debate goes something like this. Catholic and Orthodox views say that Christ implemented the continuing priesthood at the Last Supper through the administration of the Eucharist. So here's what's happening. At the Last Supper, when, when Jesus gives to his disciples the Eucharist, they see that as the very first moment where Jesus is acting as a high priest. And he is giving to them a sacrament, a means by which they can obtain grace in that moment. And in doing so, he's calling the apostles there to then take up that priesthood through invitation. As often as you take this, do so in remembrance of me, right? And so that invitation to the apostles then becomes the foundation for uh, the apostolic priesthood. And if you ask somebody who's Catholic... And, and you ask them about the apostolic line of succession, what they'll say to you is we can, we can track the priesthood all the way back through bishops and all these different people in church history, all the way back to Peter, Peter being the first pope who was given the keys to the kingdom and the ability to unlock, if you will, the gospel to the world in that moment. So that's where they say, then, the origination of the priesthood began for the church. And they draw this conclusion saying that based upon the Old Testament priesthood, what God was doing then, he is just transferring over to the New Testament church. And through the act of the Eucharist, God is implementing, Jesus is implementing a new priesthood. Now, when the Reformers began rethinking the church and protested aspects of the Catholic church, one of the areas of disagreement was this specific place. Through the five solas of the Reformation, the five sort of 
differences, the, the five um, contradictory summary statements that they said, we're pro protesting specifically these things against the church. Through the five solas, um, the reformers drew distinct lines in areas of disharmony and disagreement between the Protestants, those who were protesting, and the Catholic Church. So there were five solas. If you want to write those down, they go like this. Sola Christus. Sola Christus. This, this meant only through Jesus are we saved. It's only through Jesus. In, in other words, another way to sort of boil down how important that doctrine is, how important that distinction is, they say, listen, the only means of grace to us is not sacrament, it is not tradition, it is not attendance at the Mass. It is only through God's Son. God's Son is sufficient for all grace to be dispensed to believers. The second one, sola scriptura. They said, listen, the only thing that we have that is authoritative for faith and for rule, for understanding how we follow God, is the scriptures. Sola scriptura, only the scriptures. The Bible, they said, is the highest court of authority in the life of a believer. Now, this is really important because in those days, and, and even still to this day, when a, a papal decree or a papal edict comes out, that is considered as though he's like some sort of oracle. And on behalf of God, whatever he says is 100% from God, without error, without contradiction, without any, any difficulty whatsoever. Now, the problem with that is that, as you know, and I know, Sin still permeates humanity. So what happens if he's wrong? What do we do then? And so the reformers said, no, listen, it's only the scriptures that are right. Everything else said by man, created by man, has to be weighed against what God has revealed in his word. Sola scriptura. Then they said, sola fide. It's only by faith. Sola fide. Only through faith, not through sacrament or any other such thing. The only means by which God dispenses grace to his people and saves them is through trust in Christ, through faith. Then they said, sola gratia, only through grace. It's not through some ritual or some discipline. It's only as a gift from God. You don't have to earn it. There's no, no thing that you have to do in order to get something from God. He gives it freely out of his grace. And then lastly, the fifth sola, sola de gloria. The only purpose and reason for this, that God has given us his word and granted to us grace and salvation through his son Jesus, is for his glory. There is no other motivating factor. It is only the glory of God that is his aim. And with these points of disagreement in mind, the reformers looked at the scriptures with a fresh set of eyes. They did their best to just take the scriptures then at face value and rather than trying to, to squeeze the scriptures through the lens of tradition, 
what, the, what had happened historically, they just, they just said, okay, if, if I knew nothing about Christianity, if I, just, if, I, if I didn't bring any presuppositions to the table, and I just pick up this book right here, and I just began to read it and try and understand what it means, what would it look like? What would it look like? And they began rethinking everything. When Luther came to 1 Peter chapter 2 here, the passage that we opened up with and read, he began to rethink the priestly structure of Catholicism. This became a subject that he wrote about on, on several occasions. When Luther referred to the priesthood of all believers, which is a phrase that he coined, of course he did it in German. I don't speak German, so I'm going to give you the English translation. <laughs> the priesthood of all believers, when he spoke of that, he was maintaining that, in his words, the plowboy and the milkmaid could do priestly work. In fact, their plowing and their milking was priestly work. So there was no hierarchy where the priesthood was a vocation and milking cows was somehow not. Both were tasks that God called his followers to do, each according to their gifts. Now, this has enormous implications for us as believers. In our daily lives, this, this brings instruction to us. If this is true, if God has made us all priests, then what does life look like in the middle of that? If we've been gathered into this group of people, this, this, this holy, royal priesthood, what does it look like for us to live that out? If the church teaches that working in business and communications and politics or any other profession is just as impactful as working directly in the ministry, then it allows Christians to connect their vocation, whatever it is that they're doing, with their beliefs in their daily lives and their everyday actions, they can offer to God something that is an acceptable sacrifice to Him. It gives them purpose in their jobs. It equips them to serve others and to improve society through their daily work. It makes them a part of, a, of something that God is doing in ministering His grace to the world. On the other hand, if, if the church implies that the ministry is somehow some sort of higher calling, other than you know, the priesthood of all believers, if, if it's a higher calling to a, a higher profession, then all of a sudden believers are reduced to like, well, there's the professionals, and they, you know, we hire them, we pay them to represent us well. Can you see how that could begin to fall apart? Where the average believer is relieved of any sense of responsibility to carry out the things that God has called them to do as representatives, as mediators here on the earth. If, if ministry is relegated to some specific class of people and not to the average guy, now all of a sudden they're freed of any sense of responsibility to follow God in their daily lives. And you have there, in that, in that very um, base logic, 
the secular versus sacred divide. Luther's contention is that there was no such divide. Clearly, the idea of the priesthood of believers is vital for the health and effectiveness of the church. Now, perhaps one of the reasons that this doctrine specifically is neglected is that the priesthood of all believers is seen as a negative or controversial subject. It implies the rejection of the Roman Catholic idea of the priesthood. And this implication is, is certainly present in the, in the concept that, that Luther put forth. Let me read a quote to you. He said this. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit carefully avoids giving the same sacerdos priest or sacred priest, title sacred priest to any of the apostles or to any other office. Rather, he accepts this name to the baptized or Christians as their birthright and heredity name. None of us is born an apostle, preacher, teacher, pastor, but they're all of us are born solely priests. Then we take some from among these born priests and call them and elect them to those offices that they may discharge the duties of the office in the name of all of us, but we are all called to be priests. So now, in order to understand the change from Old Testament to New Testament, we're going to have to walk through some doctrine here. And I'm, I'm going to do my very best not to get in the weeds here because it is a little bit technical and you're going to have to really, you're going to have to wake up your brains and, and track with me a little bit, okay? Um, and I, I, I'm, I've worked really hard today to try and reduce it as much as I can, but I'm still, I'm worried that I'm going to lose you. So be ready. Think. Take good notes. Okay. So let's back up then and let's think about then the founding of the Levitical priesthood. For those of you who are taking notes, that's the first point here. The founding of the Levitical priesthood. Question, what was the point? Why did, why did God found the priesthood? I, I mean, the book of Leviticus is solely dedicated to them. <laughs> right? Why do that? Why not write a book for all of Israel? <laughs> Why so specific on the instructions? Like, don't wear this and do wear that. And you can eat that kind of animal, but you can't eat that kind of animal. And, you know, when you go to sow your fields and, you know, only have this, but don't have that in your field and don't mix those two seeds together. Why all the specificity? What's going on there? Well, here's the big deal. It was the responsibility of priests to accomplish two things. One was to represent God to man. So the goal of a priest then was to, to somehow, in some way, represent the nature and holiness and otherness of a transcendent God who stood outside of time and space and the universe and everything else who is now interacting with man, and they are to represent a, a sense of his holiness and his otherness. They were representing God to man. And vice versa, flipping that around, they were also to go to God on behalf of man, to represent man on behalf, or represent 
man to God. There we go. <laughs> I'm like, wait, I'm confused. To represent man to God. So representing God to man and representing man to God. Those are the two major functions of the priest. Now, a priest, in essence, then, is a, is a mediator between humanity and God in God's space. That is, in the temple, in the place where God's presence dwelt. If somebody wanted to get close to God... On the one hand, they would have one face, if you will, towards that man saying, God is holy, he's other, in order to come, you must be washed, you must be cleansed, your sin has to be dealt with, you can only come so close, there's a limitation because he's so much other than you. And then on the other hand, he's got another face, if you will, that is directed towards God. And in that, he's saying, God, receive this person. Their sins have been covered by the blood of the Lamb. They've been washed and made clean. Now hear their prayers and forgive their sins and blot out their transgressions. So it's really a two-directional ministry, if you will. Now, there were lots of priests that predated the Levitical priesthood. And... Lots of priests that came after him. Some of them were good priests or true priests, and some of them were not true. Priest of Midian, of course. Uh, priest Melchizedek, which we'll get to in a minute. The priest of On, Genesis 41, 45. The priest of Dagon, we see him show up in 1 Samuel. The priests uh, of the high places, 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 32. The priests of them that are no gods. 2 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 9. The, the idea was priesthood was this office, right? That, that was this mediating office or, or pl- mediating role between the supernatural and the natural. That's kind of the big idea. So God then commissions one group out from the tribes of Israel to uniquely represent him. To represent him to the nation and the nation to him. Now, this didn't mean that he only had a select few in mind to use. In fact, even before he implements the Levitical priesthood and gives specific commands to them, he makes a promise that's really important. Turn with me, if you would. Keep, it, keep a, a finger here. Or drop your ribbon here in this section because we're going to come back to it. Go back to Exodus chapter 19. and li- Who knows, just out of curiosity, who knows what Exodus 19 is, why that's an important chapter in the Bible. Anybody? It's Israel at Mount Sinai. It's the giving of the covenant of the law. Okay? And right before the covenant is, is, is made with Israel, let's check out what God says uh, to Moses. Let's pick it up in verse... Uh, let's pick it up in verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God at that point, in in, in talking to Moses and and really speaking through Moses, who is mediating before God to Israel, right? 
He says, okay, this is what I want you to tell them. It's my ultimate goal. It's my ultimate plan to bless you in such a way that you become a whole nation of priests. That all of Israel functions in such a way that you are representing me to the world and, and also the world unto me. That's my role. That's, a, that's the goal, excuse me, that I have for you. And so, this seems like it's going to go great. The nation is like, yes, all that you say we will do. But then when Moses goes up to actually get the Ten Commandments from God, what's happening back down in the valley? You guys remember? Moses is up there for a while. People get a little stir-crazy. There was no Netflix, so time is just like taking forever, right? And as they wait, they finally go, well, maybe he's dead. Maybe he's not coming back. What are we going to do? Aaron, do something for us. Help us out here. We need something to do with our time. And they create a golden calf. You remember the story. And then God interrupts his little meeting, his powwow with Moses. Says, hey, uh, something's going on down there. <laughs> you better go take care of it. Moses comes down. He finds them worshiping this golden calf. And when he finds them worshiping this golden calf, he takes the Ten Commandments that God had given him, carved with the finger of God. He throws it down, busts the Ten Commandments, breaks all ten in one fell swoop. Most immoral man that's ever lived. And then judgment ensues. In Exodus chapter 32, verses 27 to 29, he says, Who is with me to deal with the sin in Israel? And it is the Levites, the tribe of Levi. It's, it's Moses' cousins. It's all the cousins that come together. And they're like, we'll deal with this. They strap a sword on. And anybody who was a part of worshiping this golden calf, they go after and they slay a ton of people. And God says, in that moment, I've called you to this purpose. I've consecrated you for this thing. And then later on, as the story of Israel begins to unfold, God takes the Levites and says, you guys were the ones willing to deal with sin? Now let me show you what that looks like. And he implements the Levitical priesthood. Okay, so you have Levi. Levi was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, or the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Levi then has three sons. That's Gershon. Kohath and Merari. When the children of Israel build the tabernacle and they are now headed into the, the desert, the three tribes, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, are each given specific tasks to do. First of all, they're not allowed to have an inheritance. They're not allowed, they're not going to be apportioned a, 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 a place to live when they enter the promised land. God says, no, I'm your inheritance. You, you get to be close to me. That's, that's your inheritance. Okay? But then when they're camping in the desert with the tabernacle, at the head of and closest to the tabernacle, the priests would camp on each side. So on one side would be the Gershonites, the Kohathites on another, 
um, uh, Merari on another, and then Moses and Aaron on, uh, on the entrance to the east side of the tabernacle. So you have those three sons. The Gershonites, they, their duty was moving the tabernacle covers, the curtains, the screens, the cords. And, and because everything was so heavy, they were gifted with ox carts to be able to do that, which is a, another cool little facet when you understand what David does as he brings the Ark of the Covenant in on an ox cart. He mixes up some of the roles there. Really interesting. And then there were the Kohathites. Now, the Kohathites, um, Kohath, he had uh, four sons, Amram, Hebron, Hebron, Uziel, and Izthar, which you'll forget all those names. That's okay. Um, because the important thing is it's descended from Kohath is Amram, and Amram is the father of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Okay, so from Levi, you have those three sons, right? Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Kohath has four sons. One of them is Amram, so that's the next level down. Amram has three kids, uh, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And the Aaronic priesthood, which is a segment of the overall Levitical priesthood, are those descended from Kohath, which is where we get the term uh, the Kohen priest. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Or the last name, if you've ever heard the last name that is a Jewish last name, Kohen. That's, that's where that comes from. It's the, the Kohen priesthood, okay? Uh, so that's passed on down. Now, am I losing you guys? Okay, all right, you're tracking with me, good. Uh, under God's instruction then, there, is, there are different responsibilities given to each of these portions or uh, family lines, lines of descent within the Levitical priesthood. Okay, so we've, we've been talking about the foundation of the Levitical, Levitical priesthood. Let's look now at the function of the Levitical priesthood, the function of the Levitical priesthood. I'm never going to say that the first time. I'm going to have to just keep repeating it. It sounds like I'm stuttering, but it's because I am. Okay, so the function of the Levitical priesthood. Listen, if you weren't from the line of Kohath, you were excluded from certain duties in the priesthood. The Gershonites moved the tabernacle, covers, curtains, screens, cords, all with ox carts. The Kohathites had the responsibility of moving the Ark of the Covenant and the holy furniture from the tabernacle, from the temple, and they, could, they couldn't touch it with their own hands. They had to use poles, staves to do that. So they, those, those items of furniture were manufactured in such a way that you could carry them on poles. They had rings on the side, and poles would slide through the rings, and that way they didn't touch the holy implements. And, and they would carry them from place to place as they traveled. Okay? And then there, the, then there were the Merarites. Okay? And, and they were responsible for moving the tabernacle poles, the boards, the sockets, the pillars, the bars. And they did that individually by hand, which is crazy. They, they, they actually, you know, okay, you take that pole. And there you were in the desert with a giant pole on, on, your, on your back, just trucking through. And that was your job if you were part of the Merarites. Okay? Now, under the Levitical priesthood, non-Aaronic or non-Kohathite priests 
could be involved in some of just the general or menial tasks of the care of God's house, of the tabernacle. Um, they did the housekeeping in the tabernacle. They had to kind of clean up things. Uh, they, they could keep oil in the lamps. Um, they, they were not allowed to transport the ark, but they could set up the tabernacle. They could be a part of you know, setting up the tent and getting everything ready for worship. And they were really assistants to the priests. But the Aaronic order, those that were Kohathites, uh, some call, sometimes called the preparatory priesthood, they had direct interaction with the sanctuary, the sacrifices, and everything that was taking place on the inside. Okay? They could offer sacrifices. They could burn incense on the altar. They could run the ceremonies and the feasts. Um, and, 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 and there were stipulations. Like they could only qualify if they were a male above the age of 30, so you had to be at least 30 years old before you could be a priest. Um, and you, you had to meet certain qualifications of, of lacking in any impurities. So like if you were missing a finger, right? Or you, you were missing a toe. You, you, you were blemished. And you couldn't be a part of the priesthood of, of, of actually coming that close to the Lord and actually putting your hands on the implements of God. You weren't allowed to do that. Um, they were the only tribe from which the high priest could arise, only from the tribe of Aaron. Uh, they were used in resolving controversy in Deuteronomy chapter 21.5. They would assess impurity in others. Um, they would serve as judges throughout Israel's history. They were there to sort of mediate difficulties within the, the nation, within the kingdom. And the Aaronic priesthood took that role, actively participating in representing God to people and people to God. Okay. Now, from the Aaronic priesthood, so you, you, let, let's start out here. If you're an Israelite, you're, you're way out here. God's way over there, right? If you were a Levite, one of the 12 sons, one of the 12 tribes, then you could get a little closer. You could actually touch the tabernacle and, and be a part of that. But that was about it. You were good for cleanup and transportation. That was the extent of your duties or responsibilities. But... If you were an Aaronic priest or Aaronic uh, Levite, right, then you could be a part of the sacrifices. You could be a part of the, the actual ministry that is happening between people and God. But there was a limitation there. You could not go into the holiest of holies. There was only one person from the tribe of Aaron who was allowed to enter into the holiest of holies, and that was the one who was appointed the high priest. Now, he could enter the holiest of holies to cover the ark before they would move. He uh, could consult the Urim and the Thummim, and so he had like this really cool LED breastplate that would light up in specific ways, had jewels or whatever, and, and people would come and they would, they would ask uh, wisdom from God, and, and it seems from what the best that we can ascertain that God would move somehow miraculously on the Urim and Thummim that it would like light up in such a way to give an answer. It was like, um, you know, the, the magic eight ball for an Israelite, okay? Um, so he could, he could wear the, the Urim and the Thummim, uh, and, and people could come to him for advice on behalf of God. He functioned as an oracle for God. And only the high priest could enter on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur. 
He was the only one who was allowed to go one day of the year, unless they were moving. One day of the year, he could go behind the curtain into the presence of God. Only after he'd been purified and had all these, you know, gone, undergone all these rituals for purification and, and sacrifices for sins. And he could represent the people of God one day out of the year in the presence of God. Only the high priest was a leader over the priests and Levites. So he was the, 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 the tippy top, if you will, of the Levitical priesthood. And only the high priest could consecrate the priest. He was the only one who could say, you get to be a priest. You're now consecrated for that purpose, for that, for that service. So through the priesthood then, God enabled his people to offer, if you're taking notes, write these down because they'll come up again. Through the priesthood, God enabled his people to offer spiritual sacrifices, to offer spiritual instruction, he taught them through the priesthood to offer spiritual encouragement and to offer spiritual reconciliation. If they had been separated from God by their sin, they could be brought back together with God through the work of sacrifice. Now, the problem was that for Israel, the spiritual temperament of the nation would fluctuate based upon who was the priest. So if you had, like, not a great priest, he's not doing a great job of representing you before God, nor is he doing a great job of representing God's holiness to you. And so the spiritual fluctuation within the nation went up and down with who took that spiritual office. The strengths and weaknesses of those born under Adam and held captive to sin created problems within the spiritual status of the nation of Israel. When there was a godly priest, there was a godly nation. Or the opposite of that. So in addition, with all of the, the ceremonious red tape, the office of priest and the opportunity for the common Israelite, just the common man, to draw near to God is greatly restricted. Do you, do you guys hear how complex that is? Okay, I want to be close to God. Well, are you part of God's covenant people, Israel? Yes, okay, you pass gate one. Okay, uh, are you a Levite? Yes, okay, you, you pass gate two. Are you from uh, the household of Aaron? No, I'm sorry. Rejected, 4F, go carry a pole. Right? Like that was, that was how it worked. So greatly limited in their ability to draw near to God. And, and, and it's because of this very important dilemma that the writer of Hebrews is seeking to bring understanding to what God has done with the Old Testament priesthood. He is making the point that God didn't do away with the Levitical priesthood. He superseded it by attaching the priesthood to someone else other than Levi, to someone else other than Aaron. He creates a second lineage, if you will, of priests. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7.
Hebrews chapter 7. Third point down here. We have finally the fulfillment of the Levitical priesthood. The fulfillment of the Levitical priesthood. Okay. What the writer of Hebrews is going to argue is that Christ creates a different priesthood through Jesus. Because Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. What tribe is he from? Anybody know? What's that? Judah. All right. Excellent. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? And so he's not, he's not in line to represent man before God. And, and for the Hebrew, that creates a real dilemma. Like, okay, well, what do we do? Like, God, is, it, we know that God implemented the priesthood. We know that this is the way that you get close to God. And now you're telling us it's through, through Jesus and not through the sacrifices and not through the temple and not through everything that's happening in this whole worship pattern that God has established. So what do we do with that? How do we understand it? And the writer of Hebrews is going to lay down a little doctrine for them to help them sort this out. So the theological background for this idea is Christ. Uh, and his high priesthood. So we'll pick it up. He leaves off chapter 6, verse 20 by saying, Jesus has gone before us as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek was a strange, weird little figure that shows up in the book of Genesis where um, where. Abraham is coming back from a conflict, a, a war that he's had, and, and he runs into this character, Melchizedek, and he's without lineage. He doesn't have any sort of family background that the Bible talks about. There's nothing to say when he was born and when he died. Or the, 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 All we get is just this one little story here about Melchizedek. But when Abraham encounters him, he tithes to him, and, and uh, it's recorded that Melchizedek is a priest to God. Melchizedek knows God and represents him to people, and represents him to Abraham. So Abraham is tithing, giving a tenth of all of his belongings, the same way that the nation of Israel was required to give a tenth of their possessions to the Levitical priesthood. Abraham is doing that same thing to Melchizedek. So that's kind of the story that pops up. Now, verse 1 of chapter 7, For this Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, the king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. His name literally means king of righteousness, okay? Um, and then he goes on to say, and then also he is the king of Salem. Uh, Salem, does that ring a bell? Does anybody know what that word might be? It sounds really close to shalom, same meaning, peace, okay? And so when he says he's the, the king also of, of Salem, that is the king of peace. He's translating the word for us. Salem means peace. So Jerusalem, right? 
the city of peace, right? Um, shalom, that, that peace that is between uh, God and, and uh, us, and between us and the, and the created world. So he is, verse 3, without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and then blessed him who had the promises. And it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. And in that one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one of whom it was testified that he lives, that he, he never died, one might even say that Levi, the priesthood himself, who receives the tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Okay, so let me walk you through the logic here. I, it's complex, but simple when you begin to understand it. Um, he quotes Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4. And, and he's alluding to that passage, which is a messianic psalm, and it says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou, the, the, the Messiah, art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, not according to the order of Levi. Okay? So that messianic psalm says Jesus' priesthood, the Messiah's priesthood, is not going to be through Levi. It's going to be through Melchizedek. And then there's some important features. Melchizedek is, first of all, a king. And a priest, verses 1 and 2. The priesthood is not attached to a genealogy. So it's not about, like, can you connect yourself to Levi, right? With, with Melchizedek, there is no genealogical connection. It's a different type of priesthood that's not by genealogy. It's not passed down by descent, if you will. He has no beginning or end and therefore serves... As an example of a priest who has no beginning and has no end. He's eternal. So when the psalmist says, Thou art a king forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, it's an allusion to the fact that the Messiah will be a, an eternal high priest. And then he goes on to say that the descendants of Abraham were blessed by Melchizedek. And if they were the ones receiving the blessing, then the superior one was Melchizedek. That makes him greater than, if you will, the Levitical priesthood. And even in addition to that, to get kind of way out there in his theology, he says, and, and to some degree, because the Levites were not yet born or produced, that in Abraham, they are, the whole family of Israel is tithing to that high priest, the Melchizedekian high priest. And so, now there's an important point. Let's read what he means to us to understand by that. Okay, are you tracking? You tracking? We're good? Okay. Verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, 
What further need would there have been for another priesthood to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? So if, if the Levitical priesthood was enough, then why did God say, I'm making another one through the Messiah? That's his logic. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priest. So he's not a Levitical priest. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent coming from Levi, but by the power of an indestructible life. What makes him a a priest forever is the fact that his death is never recorded. There is no genealogy to follow. There isn't anything else that comes after that. Okay? Uh, For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. He's talking about the commandment of the Levitical priesthood and the law. Okay? Um, For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Listen. Remember how we were out here? Are you, a, are you a Levite? Are you from Aaron? Are you, you can only get so close. Now, God does away with all of those gates, all of those partitions, says there's a new priesthood, and we all get to enter in. Do you see that? Now watch. Watch what happens. Verse 20, And it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests, Uh, were were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Again, quoting that psalm. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. In other words, because he is a priest who ever lives and it's an eternal priesthood, He is now the guarantor of a better relationship with God. He brings us closer, and there's nothing that can separate us out. There's no gates for us to pass through any longer. And God guaranteed this by a promise. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever, talking about Jesus. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it indeed was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for uh, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, the promise from the book of Psalms, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Do you see how beautiful this is? Look at the wisdom of God. He's like, okay, I, I know that we've got this whole system. I, I'm just going to take this and set it aside. There is a direct 
line for all people to me through my son. Through the high priest, whoever lives to make intercession for us. So now, when we read what Peter wrote, it takes on new significance. Remember I told you, put, put a ribbon there. Let's go back now to 2 Peter, and let's look at, again at what it says here. Verse 4, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by, by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they, they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race. You're my Israel, right? A royal, what was, what was Melchizedek? He was both king and priest. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Look at the way that that comes together. Powerful. It defines us. And, and, and here's where it gets so great. We are then a royal priesthood. That is, all believers are called then to represent God to the world and the world to God. Now, unfortunately, there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. I don't have a whole lot of time to, to go through this, but a lot of people misunderstand this, and they say, no, I believe in the priesthood of the believer rather than in the priesthood of all believers. On the column of the priesthood of the believer, they say, no, I, I can go to God for myself. I don't need anybody else because of what Jesus did. I can live right with God without the help of anyone else. I don't need others. They say, I don't need to attend or belong. I can, I can be with God anywhere. I have direct line of access to him. And they also say, my spiritual life is private. It's only between me and God. It, it, it's the priesthood of, of the believer. And it's very individualistic interpretation. And what that does is that affirms rugged American individualism which is not a biblical idea at all. On the flip side of that, when you look at it and you say, okay, listen, it's not the priesthood of the believer. It's the priesthood of all believers. We're all brought into this. All of a sudden, we begin to work together kind of like the Levites did. We're each bearing with us some aspect of who God is and represent him. And when we all come together, what happens is the body of Christ begins to represent the glory of who God is to the world around them. Okay, so how do we do that? I'm going to give you some practical nuts and bolts st stuff here. Remember those four things I had you write down? Through offering spiritual sacrifices, through offering spiritual instruction, through offering spiritual encouragement, and through offering spiritual reconciliation. 
Listen, how do we fulfill the priesthood? We do this. A priest, first of all, offers spiritual sacrifices. Right here in 1 Peter chapter 2. We offer spiritual sacrifices. Hebrews 13, 15 says this. That we are continually offering up the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. Just our mouths constantly talking about the glories of who he is. Lifting up praises to him. Offering our bodies, Romans 12. This is your reasonable surface of worship. To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice unto him. We're offering sacrifices to God. Paul says, my life is poured out like a drink offering to the Lord. He says that to the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 17. Later on, just a couple of chapters later in, in Philippians 4.18, Paul is talking about the, the sacrifice, the giving generous hearts of the church towards him when he was in prison. Because if you were in prison, uh, if somebody didn't come feed you, you didn't eat. It wasn't like, you know, they didn't get three hots and a cot. Uh, you were dependent upon others to care for you. And the Philippian church had cared for Paul, and he said that their care for him and bringing him food and caring for him was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice unto the Lord that was pleasing to him. Uh, Peter, when he encounters Cornelius, uh, an angel comes to Cornelius and says to Cornelius, hey, your almsgiving, your care for the poor, your love in giving has come up before me as a sweet-smelling sacrifice. So I'm going to save you and your whole household. And God breaks into the Gentiles through Cornelius. So offering spiritual sacrifices, offering spiritual instruction. Part of the job of the priesthood was to instruct the people of God on how to please him and follow him. Uh, of course, the, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 19, make disciples, teaching and instructing to follow uh, in, in my statutes and being witnesses, right? Like that's, that's what we do. Offering guidance for cleansing. That's what, one of the jobs of a priest. How do I get clean you come to, how do I get clean? Put your hand on the lamb, confess your sins, trust God, and he'll cleanse you. We do the same thing. Put your hand, lay hold of Jesus Christ, trust him, he will cleanse you. Colossians 3.16, let the word of God dwell in you richly, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Listen, through spiritual instruction, singing, when we're together, we're just proclaiming the, the greatness of God. We're instructing one another to trust in God, to rely upon him, offering spiritual encouragement. Think about this, the, the priests. Who was the dirtiest person in the temple at the end of the day? It was the priest. He's covered in blood and guts and animal feces. And, you know, you try and wash in the labor, but after a while, the labor is not looking so hot either, right? And he was the dirtiest one among them all. Listen, through proximity, through closeness, we as the priesthood care for one another. We're getting in the mix and in the mud. And guys, let me tell you, if there's any one thing I have learned about the church, it's that it's messy. It's messy. There, is, there are messes that abound, but man, we got to dive in. we got to be a part of one another's lives and care for one another in that way. We offer guidance and cleansing, and there's proximity. And we're sp spurring one another to love and good works. We're provoking one another. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. 
We're offering spiritual reconciliation. Listen, part of the philosophy of the church that has been so damaging is this idea of insulation from the world. Let's, let's just back up and try not to be a part of the world. The world is going to taint us. But God's philosophy is one of infiltration. Think about what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He says, it is the will of God that prayers and intercessions and supplications be made for all people in power. Anybody who has authority. Kings. Remember what the kings were doing in the time that Paul wrote that? They were killing Christians. Just pray for them. Pray for them. Infiltrate. Come close. Draw near to this world. Represent who I am to a lost and dying world. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. But then the following verses in 17 through 21 said this, and God has reconciled us unto himself through Christ, and he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We're drawing those who've been separated from God back into relationship. We're acting as priests to the world. Listen, this is the big idea, and I'm going to turn you loose after this. This is essentially what God is saying. If people can't come to my house, I'm bringing my house to them. And I'm doing it through you, through the living stones, through the royal priesthood. And you are going to permeate like leaven the whole lump of the earth. Be carrying with you the fragrance of who I am. And the world is going to know me through you. Guys, we are a royal priesthood. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this instruction. Now, Lord, bury it deep into the soil of our hearts that it might produce fruit for your glory. Change us with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful, wonderful evening.